The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law. Are plaintiffs' lawyers involved in a kind of competition? Can Congress force a judicial code on the justices? Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. My guest is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Kyle Janner. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is it unusual, a grand jury like this, to suspect people aren't telling the truth? One of the first times the Justice Department has called for the breakup of a major company. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Madison Mills in for June Grasso today. We're talking about how a conservative supermajority is affecting the Supreme Court and reshaping the U.S. as a result. Plus, later in the show, three men convicted of acting as Chinese agents in New York City. We're going to talk about that. And the latest congressional bill targeting AI aims to work towards regulation. But is it going to work? We're going to discuss all of that and more on the program. But first, let's start with the highest court in the land, because the Supreme Court has had a string of decisions that have tested the core principles of American democracy, leaving American citizens skeptical about the court as a result. Here to discuss is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, thanks so much for being with us, as always. You've covered the Supreme Court for a while. Talk to me about what you would say is the single biggest differentiating factor of this court versus the other Supreme Courts that you've covered. Well, Madison, it starts with that 6-3 conservative majority that you mentioned, because that's what lets them do all the other things. And what we've seen is a court that has been uh, pretty aggressive in asserting its own powers, sometimes taking them away from other branches, uh, and really uh, reshaping American law uh, without uh, seemingly worrying too much about what the public reaction is. And talk to me about that public reaction. How big of a shift would you say you've seen in terms of the public perception of the Supreme Court? Yeah, the, the, the court's public standing is at or near record lows, and that is driven uh, primarily by really low approval ratings among Democrats and liberals. Uh, you know, it's What's causing that? Uh, you know, the polls don't necessarily show that, but certainly all these big divisive decisions, the abortion decision being the, the, the biggest one last year, uh, but also all these ethics controversies that we've had floating around. We've seen the court's uh, approval numbers dip since the revelations about Clarence Thomas uh, a few months ago. And now, of course, we're seeing some new ones involving Justice Sam Alito. Do we know which of those two is having more of an impact in terms of public perception? Is it the sentiment surrounding the decisions of the court or the personal ethics violations and and allegations about those violations of individuals on the court that's driving public perception? 
it's really hard to say, um, you, you know, if I'm guessing, and I'll just say this is a guess, just kind of based on looking at the numbers and when they, they shift, uh, it's roughly equal parts both. Uh, certainly, uh, there are people who are already predisposed to be uh, skeptical of the court and what it's doing. And so maybe when somebody who doesn't like the court's abortion decision then reads about luxury vacations taken by Clarence Thomas, uh, that's all the more reason for them to say, I don't approve of what the court is doing. So in some ways, the two issues sort of uh, you know overlap with one with one another and kind of build on one another. Well, also we we talked earlier, and, and as you said, it's this six three division of a conservative majority in the court. But you know, it, it's not technically supposed to be a, a political uh, body, as as you know very well. Are we seeing that politicization of the Supreme Court getting more and more intense as the years go on? Yeah, very much so. And and depending on which side you talk to, we, we will start at a different point in describing how we got here. But certainly where we ended up is the six most conservative justices on the court are all Republican appointees. The three most liberal are all Democratic appointees. Uh, if there is another vacancy that comes up, nobody will expect Joe Biden to nominate somebody who's anything other than a liberal justice. Uh, and that's a dynamic we didn't used to have. You know, back 20 years ago, there were Republican-appointed justices whom we would, we would describe as liberals because they, they turned out not to be exactly what uh, the Republican Party was expecting when, when they were nominated. And going a little farther back, you could find uh, Democratic-appointed justices who were conservative on at least some issues. And that phenomenon just doesn't exist anymore. So given that, are we expecting or do you anticipate any sort of changes uh, to come in terms of how the the makeup of the court is decided uh, and just kind of the, you know, tradition of the court in general? Do you see any changes to that happening? It's really hard to see how we as a society get out of this particular box we're in. Uh, you know, we've you know, essentially now in a world where you know Republicans are are saying, for example, if if uh, there's another vacancy uh, when Joe Biden is president, if they are able to block uh, confirmation in the in the Senate, they will do that. Um, you know, Democrats, of course, have talked about adding seats to the court, but no indication there is the kind of political will you would need to make that happen. Um, and some of these justices, uh, you know, of course, they have life tenure. So, uh, you know, the justices appointed by Donald Trump are all, you know, well south of, of 60 and can serve for several more decades. Well, Greg, one thing that you also talk about in your story, uh, which folks can find on Bloomberg.com and on the terminal, of course, about the aggressive Supreme Court reshaping the U.S., is just the kind of growth of the power of the Supreme Court. Are there any decisions that the court has made that you can talk to us about that have extended and expanded that power? Yeah, the, the the easiest place to to think about this with it, it, with regard to is it, that phenomenon is regarding the EPA. So a series of decisions we have seen the court last year restricted the EPA's authority over climate change uh, in in terms of uh, regulating emissions coming out of power plants. This term, the court sharply curtailed the EPA's authority over to protect wetlands and and took potentially tens of millions of wetlands out of the uh, 
out of the scope of the, the Clean Water Act. And then next term, the court has a case that's a little more kind of in the legal weeds, but is really important that they're considering overturning a precedent that has given agencies a certain amount of leeway when they interpret statutes. And, you know, all told, what that means is the agencies are able to do less than they were able to. And the Supreme Court now is, is more the final arbiter of uh, what the agencies can and cannot do. Well, and speaking of that power as well, it just feels like there's we're kind of in a different era, and you talk about this in the story, than than we were when the Supreme Court was originated. You know, I think about the use of uh, quill pens in the courtroom, for example. Do you see any of those sort of, I, I don't want to say smaller, but those, those little uh, traditions changing over time uh, to kind of at least indicate to the public that there is some um, evolution happening with the Supreme Court? Well, this is a court that is very resistant to changing its longstanding practices. Now, one thing that has changed is, uh, you know, arguments, which used to be, it used to be the only people who could hear the arguments were the, the few hundred people who could pack into the courtroom. Now they live stream the arguments, and that has, you know, provided a certain amount of transparency. Now, that they were sort of forced into that because of the realities of the pandemic when they were holding arguments by phone. But they're still resisting other things that, that could make the, the court more transparent, for example, cameras in the courtroom, uh, mm. no indication that, that they're anywhere close to, to allowing that. So what are the big questions that the court is going to be answering uh, this cycle that you can let us in on? Yeah, there are there are uh, several very big cases the court's going to be deciding in the next week and a half or so. Uh, uh, perhaps the biggest one uh is one that could abolish the use of race in college admissions. The court's being asked to overturn a couple precedents that that say universities can do that for the sake of of achieving campus diversity. The court is also considering striking down President Biden's student loan relief uh, policy, which uh, would uh, forgive, uh, at least in part, loans held by some 40 million people. Uh, There's a, a big case involving the intersection of free speech rights and LGBTQ rights. There's a very big case involving who gets to set the rules for federal elections. So it's going to be a very busy next week and a half, and it will tell us a lot more about whether the court wants to wants to continue being as aggressive in the use of its powers as it has been in the past. And really quickly here, Greg, what's next when it comes to the ethics questions of some of the Supreme Court justices? Well, we had this new story from ProPublica about Justice Alito, and there's going to be a lot of fallout from that. The, the, the story, the report is that he you know, took a, a, a fishing vacation with somebody who eventually had business before the court, didn't disclose that. There's going to be a lot more talk about trying to impose a code of conduct on the Supreme Court. All right, Greg. Well, thank you so much, as always, for joining us to break down all things the Supreme Court in the United States. That was Greg Storr, Bloomberg News reporter, joining us from Washington, as always, to talk about the Supreme Court. Really important coverage from him and the rest of our D.C. team about the decisions to come from the Supreme Court, as he was mentioning there. Uh, We've got student loans on the docket, affirmative action. So a lot of really big questions that are going to be shaping the future of democracy in the U.S. and a lot of other factors there. So really important to watch. Coming up, we're going to talk about the future of AI regulation in D.C. That's next. I'm Madison Mills in for June Grasso on Bloomberg Law this week. And this is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to move from Washington up here to New York City because a retired NYPD sergeant and two others were convicted as agents of China. Those three men were also pressuring dissidents to return to China from the U.S. as well. So here to discuss all of the details of this is Bloomberg News reporter Patricia Hurtado joining us uh, by phone. Patricia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just give me the lowdown here for those who haven't been familiar with this story. What do we need to know? Well, a Brooklyn federal jury heard a three-week trial and deliberated for two days in a case that accused a retired NYPD police sergeant and two other men with acting as legal agents of the Chinese government to pressure dissidents to return to China. And what does this mean for those three men in terms of what's next for them? What happens? Well, they all three face substantial prison time. One of them, uh, the former cop, faces at least uh, 20 years and possible 20-year prison term. Um, Substantial time for anybody. And this was the first case to go to trial brought by the U.S. government making these allegations, which are pretty serious. If you think about it, it's that the Chinese government sent operatives or had operatives acting on their behalf to pressure and induce Uh, former Chinese nationals who move to the U.S. and show up on their doorsteps and spy on them. That's Yeah, that's really interesting. Do we know any of the details of what that operation sort of looked like and and anything else you can tell us about what would go on with that? Well, the government has brought several cases, and the Eastern District of New York, which includes uh, neighborhoods, include, you know, Chinatowns in both Brooklyn, Sunset Park, as well as in Flushing, Queens, they have brought other cases involving uh, activity, they allege, has been, you know, uh, people acting on behalf of the Chinese government, including enslaving people to build and do work on a uh, house that was owned by the, uh, uh, an estate that was owned by the Chinese government. But this case basically alleges that they, people were um, being monitored, this um, former police sergeant was accused, and the jury found that he accessed law enforcement databases to find out information about where these people lived and would show up and track their cars. And these people were getting messages and uh, letters in their mail, um, basically threatening them. So, you know, the idea that there's this big brother is watching all the way from mm-hmm. China is quite shocking to some some people. Of course. Yeah. And this was called uh, Operation Fox Hunt by the Chinese government. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And um, it was basically the U.S. government alleges that this was this initiative, uh, you know, hatched by the Chinese Ministry of Public Security. So they were basically um, they're also accused of um, even establishing a police, an illegal police station 
in right. New York um, to basically, uh, you know, monitor people and and spy on them. And that was according to a case that was just filed in um, April. So, I mean, the allegations that these people were even hired, um, a former cop who's not Asian, to use his access to law enforcement databases, it, it's shocking, you know. that. Right. And that former cop, that's Michael McMahon, correct? That's correct. That's correct. So to what extent is is this news that we're talking about, uh, Michael McMahon and the two other men convicted as agents of China, how connected, if at all, is that to the secret police station in New York City uh, that others were arrested uh, regarding? Well, that case, um, it's an outgrowth. It's also brought by federal prosecutors in Brooklyn. And that case is basically an iteration of the similar activity. If you want to think mm-hmm. about it, it's more possibly egregious te- uh, activity, right? I don't know which one do you think is worse, having a, <clears throat> a private secret police station in Chinatown in lower Manhattan or having people travel around and show up on doorsteps. Right. Uh, the testimony in this case, um, this re- most recent case that just got made, was they were showing up at the doorstep of this man, his wife, and his daughter mm. in New Jersey and showing up in the doorstep and she was getting, their family was getting mail. And at one point, one of the victims testified they got a letter that was basically suggesting that they would be better off committing suicide than staying in the U.S. Oh my gosh, yeah. And and talk to me about the victims then. Did they go to the police and did they feel comfortable doing that? How did How did they kind of come forward? The evidence did show that even China caused an Interpol red notice to be filed with the International Police Group um, that said, complained about uh, on behalf of China that these three people were wanted by China. So if you can imagine that your Interpol is looking for you, but it's all cooked up, um, that's wild, you know, to think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, Yeah. Eventually, these uh, the victims were um, reached, by, you know, reached the law enforcement. The the allegations reached law enforcement, and there's been a couple of cases, you know, that have been brought by the U.S. government um, under the Trump started under the Trump administration called the China Initiative, which has basically also brought cases, including alleging that the the Chinese telecommunications giant called Huawei Technologies was also spying, but that was corporate espionage, basically. So, you know, it seems like all kinds of initiative. Let's not just go after the Chinese people we believe are dissidents in the U.S. running from controversy or is trying to escape controversy or oppression in China, but also let's operate in the U.S. and spy on American technology. So there's two cases that were brought, one of them in Seattle and one of them in federal court in Brooklyn that's also pending part of this China initiative. So, you know, it's uh, some of the cases have been very have been unsuccessful and the U.S. has had to drop them. But, um, you know, there's just a, seems like um, it, it, with the current situation of the status of the U.S.-China relations, which, which are chilly, um, you know, it has been frosty in the past. And certainly the China initiative was an outgrowth of the Trump administration's view that China was not to be trusted. 
Right. Well, you mentioned kind of the context here, and it's it's so important to note this is coming after, uh, you know, Blinken has just been in Beijing and had a surprise meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, a 35-minute meeting toward the end of his two-day visit there, and Chinese officials uh, sort of blasting the U.S. Um, after that meeting, kind of talking about the U.S. tampering with its political promises on Taiwan after, again, after that meeting. So, um, that, that context is important. And then, of course, from the Bloomberg side of things, what we cover is the importance of the business uh, impact when it comes to things like semiconductors and the chips race and the chips war, really. Uh, yeah. So, that, that context is just uh, making these making these interactions between the U.S. and China even, even more chilly, as you mentioned, Patricia. And, and you know, you, the one thing you can say is that um, while this initiative was underway, there were a lot of cases brought. And I think many of our readers would remember that Meng Wanzhou, she was the CFO of Huawei. She's arrested at the request of the U.S. on charges in Vancouver, Canada. And she fought the case vehemently from, from the, it was a Brooklyn federal case. So while the case against the company is still pending, she was allowed to go home after uh, in a plea deal. But in meanwhile, the China initiative brought an, I should say, the China initiative, which was pretty, you know, uh, hard, uh, iron fisted by the Trump administration. The DOJ now has scrapped the China initiative under the Biden administration. Mm. Um, many people felt that it was a little too hard, hard nosed on yeah. it. So. Yeah, lots, lots to cover there, Patricia. Thank you so much for joining us and talking it all through. We really appreciate it. That was Patricia Hurtado, our Bloomberg News reporter on this story. Next up, we're talking AI regulations, so stick around. I'm Madison Mills, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It wouldn't be a Bloomberg show without us talking about artificial intelligence. And of course, with all the power of AI, you could say that comes with great responsibility. That's one reason we're hearing and seeing a lot of regulation questions popping up in Congress to try and hedge against any issues to come with AI. So here to discuss this with us is Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Matthew Shettenhelm. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, Matt. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to take a page out of Jay Powell's book from his uh, comments in Congress today. He talked about how if you drive a car, if you're driving somewhere, you might start off really fast and slow down a little bit. Once you're getting closer to your destination, so not a big speeder, Jay Powell. Um, when it comes to AI regulation, are we just leaving the house for the road trip, or are we are we getting close to the destination? Yeah, I think we are. We're not even out of the house yet. <laughs> we're uh, we're, up we're, the yeah, car. yeah, we're starting <laughs> to get ready, and and you know, it. This is such a tough thing for Congress to take on because it's it's so new and it's so technical, and and then it 
and then once you know down the road it starts to become more political so in congress has struggled so much to regulate big tech and now it has this whole new concept of this whole new big thing that it wants to go after but it has very little concept right now of one the the technology and and to the problems that might come up. So so fashioning a regulatory regime to address that is 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 just a daunting problem for for Congress. And you mentioned big tech. How unique is it that AI executives and officials, the big movers in AI are kind of on board to work with Congress as compared with the big tech thing that we saw? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, they've definitely been a lot of resistance um, from big tech in terms of, of, you know, resisting data privacy regulation. But you've also seen like companies like like Meta, Facebook, being you know supportive of uh, at least publicly, and so that that we've often seen that distinction said, okay, regulate us, give us something, and even Congress couldn't couldn't do that. You're seeing that here as well, where where the companies are are, are coming in and saying, look, I, we want to support you know a reasonable approach to using this technology. You as lawmakers should impose something reasonable. Um, but then I think in, in behind the scenes, it's, it's often a different story. When, when, when regulators are starting to put together sort of aggressive regulation, I think you see a, a different tone from the companies when, when, as that plays out. So talk to me about what some of the proposed legislation right now is looking like. Yeah, so it's very early days right now. So I think uh, so far we've seen, I think, two bipartisan bills introduced since the first hearing in the Senate last month. And one of those has to deal with Section 230, the the, the liability shield that has been uh, a big deal in, in big tech. Uh, in terms of shielding companies from from lawsuits and and lawmakers want to get out in front of that with AI and say, look, we don't want this liability shield to apply to AI. We if, if people are harmed because of AI, people should be able to sue over that. So that's the first bill that's sort of out of the gates. I don't know that that's a huge deal. I don't know that that the courts are you know going to be jumping into AI litigation really really fast. And even if they did, I'm not sure section. 230 would would be much of a shield. I think there's a strong argument that Section 230 shouldn't apply to AI, even without Congress saying that in, in new legislation. And then the second bill that, that we're seeing right now is is sort of, I think, uh, something that might catch on. And, and it's the idea of proposing a commission of, of about 20 people from the industry, um, uh, from, from, from um, privacy groups and things like that to, to slow down and take a look at this in a comprehensive ma- manner and 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 issue a couple reports over the next 2 years to say okay what is it that AI can do what should we be concerned about and how should we think about regulating it mm-hmm. and, and 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 as you think through the difficulty of the problem as we started talking about earlier that that might be congress's best chance is mm-hmm. is sort of let's slow down let's have some experts you know, look at this, and and after that commission does its work over over a year or two, maybe Congress then is in in a better position to adopt real regulations of things that matter. Talk to me about Section two thirty again. You mentioned that AI maybe should not be part of that. Why is that? Yeah, so I I, I think I think there's 
a pretty strong argument that Section 230 shouldn't apply to to to, to AI. Section 230 has has played its most important role in in saying that when when a user posts something on social media, the user is responsible for that post. You can't sue Meta or or Google because they hosted the the content that that I posted. You know that, that was harmful. You can sue me. You can't sue Meta or 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 Google for that. And I think. In the AI context, it's not as clear that that would happen as often. It's 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 probably the case where the AI is putting is is the speaker um, more than 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 a, a third party. And so, especially with courts sort of reluctant to expand Section Two Thirty, there's sort of a trend against that. I tend to think that if these cases start getting into the courts, the courts are going to be skeptical about extending the liability shield to AI anyway. And I think they're mostly going to going to hold the the AI companies responsible. That doesn't mean the AI companies would lose those lawsuits. Uh, it just means they wouldn't have this extra shield on top to to throw out the lawsuits right out of the gate. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then and then going over to like you mentioned the idea of the National AI Commission Act and Congress kind of bringing in uh, 20 members to look at AI's risks. Just a curveball question that occurred to me here is, you know, Congress got a lot of flack for inviting Sam Bankman-Fried to D.C. to advise them on what crypto regulation could look like. Is there any potential threat of that, or would this be a little bit different? Yeah, so I I think, you know, it's a a tough one, because I think the more that that Congress invites industry in to be a part Mm -hmm. of this conversation about regulation should look like, the more likely it's going to result in regulation that isn't all that disruptive to the industry. And so that... Um, and so it, it's it's this constant balance um, that that Congress has to do because if, if it if it ignores industry and says we'll, we'll we got this we'll we'll go do the regulation ourselves they don't know how to they don't they don't really understand the technology enough to do it so in my view you know you you would open yourself up to more criticism as if you do this but I think it might be the only way for Congress to get itself up to speed on this technology is 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 at least in the preliminary stages partnering. With with industry to some extent and trying to understand both you know what what is the good that can come of this but also what what are the risks that they should be thinking about i think congress really needs to to slow down and invite industry in to be a part of that conversation yeah it's such a good point cuz we've seen historically that uh, it can be difficult for congress to get a handle on some of these Absolutely. these big tech uh, shifts yeah um, i want to talk to you too about any headwinds this could cause for AI growth, uh, because you do sit on our Bloomberg intelligence team as a litigation analyst. Uh, should investors be worried about DC moves? You know, I really wouldn't be overly concerned. I think this is going to be a hot topic for for years to come. I think, and so you're you're gonna what you're going to see is, is the constant barrage of headlines about. You know uh, what does this technology do, and what should we be doing about it? And so we are w- literally one hearing in on Capitol Hill <laughs> on, on this. You know, and there's going to be, uh, I think, multiple. This is going to be a regular part of the conversation, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. But what we've seen from the big tech effort, you know, the effort to impose data privacy legislation and how that's just failed. And it's just very hard for Congress right now to to reach consensus 
on on this stuff. And and Europe's moving ahead. And I you know I think Europe's likely to to move first on some of this mm. stuff. And 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 the U.S. just like on 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 GDPR and 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 data privacy. I think the U.S. is probably going to be playing catch up a little mm. bit there as as Europe moves ahead. But in my view, just the difficulty of of getting your head around this technology and the problems, and then the politics overlaid on top of that, it's difficult to see Congress doing anything that would be re- really materially disruptive. And in part yeah. because they don't want to thwart this technology, you know, and, and drive right. it elsewhere. Right, right. It's a really good point. Uh, Matt Schettenhelm, Bloomberg Intelligence litigation analyst. Thank you so much for joining us. Really important uh, points there on the challenges and opportunities, perhaps, that come with regulating AI. But uh, makes a lot of sense that Congress would not want to move too quickly there. I'm Madison Mills, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. All right, we got to move over to Seattle now to talk about Amazon because the FTC suing Amazon for making it difficult to cancel those Amazon Prime accounts. If you're like me, you got that account when you were in college and have had it ever since. So here to discuss the situation with us is Spencer Soper. He is, of course, our Amazon eBay expert based in Seattle for us. Spencer, thanks for hopping on the call. Uh, Talk me through this latest news from the FTC. Yeah, so the FTC more broadly is just trying to crack down in general on any of these kind of online subscriptions. You know, there's people get them for meals, for a variety of things, for uh, movie tickets, and of course, Amazon Prime, which people pay, you know, $139 a year for or $15 a month for. Um, and so what basically the, the gist of it is it should be as easy to cancel one of these things as it is to sign up. And there's often a pretty significant difference you know amazon makes it very simple to sign up for prime if you're not a prime member and you're shopping on the site they bombard you with suggestions would you like to join prime and get free shipping and this and that and and highlight all of the benefits but then if you decide you no longer want it they send you into what's internally called like this iliad loop you know which refers to this uh greek poem of the uh, you know the saga along the trojan war you know and and you have to go through screen after screen after screen trying to trying to cancel your membership and so you know this is part of a broader crackdown around those practices but with a very high profile company yeah you never want your amazon shopping experience to be reminiscent of the trojan war i doubt that that's uh, in the best interest of amazon here uh talk me through this isn't the only uh ftc suit against amazon right now talk me through some of the others well the ftc has been looking uh very broadly cast a a really wide net around all of the big tech companies you know Mm -hmm. amazon google Apple, Facebook, in Amazon in particular, things that they've been looking at is, um, uh, you know, are they a monopoly? You know, if you just, you know, are are they causing consumer harm by having too much control over online shopping in the in the U.S. And then other things like is uh, Amazon Web Services a monopoly? You know, their cloud computing division. Um, do they squeeze their uh, merchants, there's about 2 million merchants that sell things on Amazon. Are they squeezing them un- unfairly or using uh, coercive tactics? So they're they're really looking at Amazon in a, in a variety of ways. Yeah. So where does this leave Amazon in terms of what they need to do next here? Because Amazon 
already changed its process for canceling Prime subscriptions, right? So do they just need to keep making changes to try and sort of pre-adjust before any other issues come up from the FTC? What's what's their standing right now? Yeah, they did a few months ago change the site to to try to simplify it. And this was while the FTC investigation was going on. They were also um, uh, they also faced action in the European Union for similar issues. So the European Union is generally a little bit ahead of the U.S. in terms of uh, cracking down on this kind of stuff. So, yeah, they're going to try to tweak it. I imagine with with Amazon, they generally want to do just enough and not any more to keep the regulators at bay. You know, we could see some kind of fine or settlement with the FTC where they make a payment. Um, and it could even involve some sort of marginal rebate to consumers. You know, I mean, it's like two thirds hmm. of U.S. households belong to uh, Amazon Prime. So yeah. if they even if they did have some, you know, staggering figure as a settlement, you know, every U.S. consumer is going to maybe get a buck or two. Yeah. Final final 30 seconds here, Spencer. Uh, we've been talking a lot about subscriptions and the impact that they have on the stock price of these companies, particularly uh, Netflix coming to mind. Uh, any chance of news like this impacting Amazon's share price or not so much? It doesn't seem to have, have uh, affected it. I mean, it, the bottom line is that it's very popular. And I've, I've been covering Amazon a long time, and I've rarely heard this complaint from consumers. They have a high, a very high customer retention rate. A few people, right. I think, try to cancel yeah. because they're satisfied with the membership. They're, yeah. It's something like more than 90% of all customers yeah. who try a free trial membership uh, stay with it. There you go. All right, Spencer, thank you so much for joining us and coming on to talk about the FTC lawsuit against Amazon. We really appreciate it. Uh, again, really interesting to note because, I mean, like Spencer was saying, I I've never tried to cancel my Amazon membership, but some people do. All right, this is Bloomberg Law. I'm Madison Mills, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.